We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why reluctantly codependent sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Hello, and welcome to the Monster Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner, and it is March, and for March, we're going to Maine, and see all the creepy things in Maine. How was your weekend? How was your week? Let me know on the social medias. Uh, I had a pretty good weekend. Went out to eat. Uh, met my girlfriend's parents. And that was pretty cool. They're pretty nice people. Had some great Mexican food. Um, learned that. Took some money out for bills. Get my taxes together. Like we all should be. Pay your taxes, people. It's good. Helps get the road clear. Get the roads all nice. And stuff. Anyway. And, uh... Looking at getting guests. Oh, yeah, I got, uh... A guest schedule up for, uh, April... And hopefully I'll be able to guest on their show. And let's talk more about that later on. I'll, as I get closer to that um, scheduled date, I'll talk more about that. And like hype it up and stuff. But I'm not very good at hyping up stuff. I'm not really a cheerleader. <sighs> Ooh. Okay. Let's go. What else? I'm trying to uh something different. I don't know. I'm trying to make it better. Um I've been listening to a lot of different um podcasts at work. Like the Pals podcast and uh Top of the Flop. And I listen to uh They were great. And like the Pals podcast, they had a episode uh with a Olympic gold medalist finger skater I think that was super cool to listen to and another and the type of flop had one about uh Murphy Jack Murphy uh Jack the King Murphy and um about the video game company that made uh uh Dio Katana it was called Ion Storm yeah that was super interesting. And others about um excuse me, I'll take a drink of coffee. They're great. Uh who else? 
Sorry, I listen to many podcasts. Sorry, guys. Keep track. Let me look up on my Spotify. Do 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 do. Yeah, you can um follow them on. You're on Instagram. Like Palace Podcast. Uh, top of the flop. Who else? Who else got favorite? Library podcast. Chills. Uh, podcast, last podcast and live. Weird historian. That's the one I found this recently today. I'm gonna listen to that work tomorrow. Oh, boo. Go to Anchor. Anchor up. Walk in the Shadowlands. That's another one by uh, Marianne Coleman. I swear I've seen that name before. I don't know where. I was looking up stuff. Uh, Tales from Camp from Campfire. Yep, that's another one. And the Moving On podcast. That's great too. We talk about um, like pop culture stuff. They're all great. You can all find them on. Ah, dropping phone. Sorry. Yeah. You can all find them on Anchor, Spotify, all that. Uh, Apple, all that. All those great podcasting platforms. But, okay. Sorry if I talk too fast. I'm trying to be better at talking slower. Like always, let's start a little history. Well, history lesson on Maine. Uh, Maine, the largest of the six New England states, lies at the northeastern corner of the country. Maine became the 30, 23rd state on March 15, 1820, as part of the Missouri Compromise, which allowed Missouri to enter the Union as a slave state and Maine as a free state. Uh, Maine is bounded by Canadian province of Quebec and the New Brunswick and by New Hampshire. Maine is famous for its rocky coastline and is the leading U.S. producer of lobsters and blueberries. Canada State on March 15, 1820. Uh, capital is Augusta. It has a population of 1,328,361. It is 35,304 square miles. Nicknames for Maine is the Pine Tree State and Vacation Land. The motto for Maine is Darigo, which means I lead. The state tree for Maine is the White Pine. The state flower is the white pine cone. So pine cones are flowers? Huh, okay. The state bird is the chickadee. Um, interesting facts about Maine. English colonists led by George Popham established Fort St. George in Maine in 1607. The same year Jamestown, Virginia was founded. Overwhelmed by the harsh climate and left leaderless after Pompeii's 
death, the colonists returned to England a year later, resulting in Jamestown being regarded as the first permanent colony in North America. Uh, Agamenticus was the first city to be chartered in the United States in 1641. In 1642, it was renamed Gorgiana and incorporated as the first city when the Massachusetts Bay Colony annexed southwestern Maine in 1652. Gorgiana was reincorporated as York. Due to a long stretch of drought-like conditions that began in the summer of 1947, a series of subsequent fires destroyed more than 200,000 acres in what became known as the Year Maine Burned. The ice storm of 1998, which knocked out power to half of the state for more than two weeks in January, resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in damages considered to be one of the worst natural disasters in Maine's history. Eastport is the easternmost city in the continental United States. Only slightly further east is the town of Lubeck, Maine. More than 100 million pounds of lobsters were harvested off the coast of Maine in 2011. Now generally considered to be an expensive delicacy, lobsters were commonly fed to inmates and indentured servants or ground up and used as fertilizer during the colonial era. Maine was the district of the state of Massachusetts until 1820. Well, okay. Uh, what about, about the Missouri Compromise? Uh, if I remember from my uh, Civil War history class, the Missouri Compromise was a deal like they, um, I might be wrong here, so if, please correct me if I'm wrong. Like, uh, they made a deal. Like, the Missouri, and they, uh, made a deal. Like, oh, should I keep the states even with, uh, the slave and free states at the time? So they made a compromise about in that. So, should I keep it even, like, even number of states that were even, that were, um, free and slave? So, neither one will have a, um, a majority. Okay, let's get to the monsters. Uh, the two fishermen face down a sea monster in Casco Bay. The sun had just come up. Then, when he saw it through the morning haze on Casco Bay, at first, they thought it was a submarine coming towards their boat. Five miles off Cape Elizabeth, when it, get, when it got closer, Portland fishermen Ole Milkelson and Ajmar Hergard could see it was a living thing. The creature had a long neck and a broad head held up out of the water. It stopped 125 feet from their boat. Though they could see no eyes, they knew it was looking at them. That summer morning, Mickelson and Hergar had come face to face with Cassie, the fable monster of Casco Bay, that was 59 years ago this week on June 5th, 1958. 
I won't forget it because until fame Portland cryptologist Lauren Coleman in 1985, I need to get her on this show because I want to talk to her so bad. She has so, I want to talk to her. God, that'd be awesome. Uh, in 1985, cryptology is a study of hidden or unknown animals, and it was Coleman who named the creature Cassie. Muggleson's description was so earnest and detailed, it gave Coleman goosebumps. It was like he saw JFK, Coleman told me on Saturday at his International Cryptozoology Museum on Thomas Point. He was reliving it. Coleman believes Cassie to be a mammal because of the whale-like way it's said to swim. As opposed to side to side wrinkling that would indicate it was some kind of snake. Uh, Milkison and Hagar were not the first to see Cassie, though. People have been seeing strange things in the water off Maine since the 18th century. In June 1779, future U.S. Navy hero Edward Prebell, then an ensign, said he encountered something in Pensacola Bay. Prebell said it was 100 feet long and thick as a barrel. His commander ordered him to a long boat, telling him to shoot the animal. One shot, when shots were fired, it swam off unharmed. Cassie made an appearance in Portland Harbor on July 12, 1818. Several people on Weeks Wharf said they saw it. In 1836, the schooner Fox saw something slithering through the surf near Mount Desert Rock. It too held its head out, held its head out of the water. On August 5, 1905, a 60-foot mottled brown monster with a snake-like head circled a sailboat for 10 minutes off Wood Island Light. Uh, Light Major General H.C. Merriam and his sons were on board and said the creature lifted its head to 4 feet above the surface. Okay. The Steamer Bonita saw Cassie again in Casco Bay on August 20th, 1910. Folks on board said it was more like 80 feet long with spots. Eastport had saw something, had saw some sightings in the 1930s and 40s. A woman reported seeing something definitely Cassie-like off Bifford as late as 2002. Uh, Milkison said the animal he and Hagar saw was brown with a lighter underbelly. It had a forked tail like a mackerel, only it was horizontal like a whale. As I sat there in the water looking them over, the Portland lightship blew its fog signal not far off. Each time it sounded, Milkison said Cassie turned its head in that direction as if it was listening. The encounter unnerved Hagar. He was ready to cut their fishing nets and make a run for the light ship. But Cassie came no closer. After about 45 minutes, it swam around them in a half circle and continued south. What did the, those two men see out there? What did all those folks see over the years? I don't know. However, that doesn't mean the, those things didn't happen. I've never seen Cassie, but it's no indication it doesn't exist. You see, everything has an explanation, but not everything has yet been explained. Let that sink in, especially at the beach this summer, when the pace of seaweed brushes your leg. Dude, what did we write this for? Oh, that's so creepy. Ugh. Okay. 
That was by uh, Troy R. Bennett of the Oracle. He wrote that. On Portland.bang. Bangordailynews.com. Okay. Okay, let's go. Uh, next monster. That's interesting. Okay, uh, let's, let's talk about that. So what we got here? I see a monster. Reason to have, I don't know an animal that can... Reptilian in about something. Might be uh, I don't know what it could be. The mane's pretty cold. more than one it could be something uh it could be something that that's a pretty long lifespan and something that doesn't stop growing grows pretty big either way Oh, what's next? What's next? Okay. Um, the Poco Moonshine Lake Monster. Almost everyone on here has heard of this serpent-like creature, and quite a number of those who frequent the lake have it, have seen it, or the trail that it leads behind. Of course, those who see it are hesitant to tell other adventure because some disbeliever is bound to ridicule the witness, as we shall see in the last. Part of this article, here are a few of the facts that we can share. First, the monster appears like a water snake. It appears to be in the water, while in that habitat, only its head and occasional part of its long body is visible. Pull the water snake from the lake and measure it with a yardstick will reveal its true length. Those snakes are Puka Moonshine. Those snakes at Puka Moonshine often exceed three feet. Unfortunately, no record exists of a monster being pulled from the waters and measured. Thus, we have to depend on an estimate of length and does vary from 30 feet to 60 feet. The article we will quote later describes their width as 4 feet based on their trail through soft ground. Yes, like uh, L's, the monster can leave the water. What's that L? Oh, uh, okay and travel over land to get around a dam or to another part body of water. Most witnesses of Pukamushan Lake monster trails set the width at 3 feet. These trails are often evident in the marshes by the river between Pukamushan and Crawford Lakes. Casual observers likely don't have a clue of what they are seeing. Uh, at a recent petroglyph exhibit at UM Makia's state archaeologist Mark Hedden described character that the Pazamungudi had drawn into the shale rocks between 3,000 years ago and about 1700 AD. These characters include the shaman and his brother spirit, moose, deer, huge water serpents, and from up after the contact with Europeans, the cross and ships. Fanny Hardy Ekstorm uh, described those serpents are water monsters in Old John Neptune. Page 
39 through 48 are summarized in the next two paragraphs. The fight with the Willamette, the supreme achievements of John Neptune, was an encounter with the dreaded underwater monster known by the Passamgodis and the Willamette. The scene of this fight is always laid at Boyden's Lake and Perry. The Passamgodi name for the lake is Nezik, Nezik, Nezik uh, meaning Rolly or Muddy from the Great Fight. The story appears first in print in Alcorn Legends of New England in 1884. John Neptune, a shaman of great powers, was in conflict with a mismatch chief and agreed to sell this in the waters of Nezik. Neptune turned himself into a horned snail and the mismatch became a huge serpent. 40 feet long. They battled in the lake. Neptune killed his antagonist and tied his body to a tree on a promontory on the west shore of the lake. At this point, some readers might believe that this is one of those wild stories that Terry Holtz requested. True doubters, members of the Flat Earth Society, may stop reading now. Those who feel the need for a relay check, read on. The March 21st, 1882 issue of the Makia's Union has an article entitled Chain Lake Snake. This the article is in fact a letter from one Sewell S. Quimby of Wesley in which he attempts to refute the existence of this monster. Sewell, 1840, and his wife Lizzie, 1846, lived in Wesley. Nearby lived his parents, David, 1802, and Phoebe, 1810 and also his brother Hiram, 1831, his wife Deborah, 1837, and her daughter Annie, 1873. The Quimby family had a sawmill on Chain Lake Stream according to the 1881 atlas right on the airline. Here is Sewell's letter. Mr. Editor, as I was returning home Saturday, I heard a man say the great earnestness, earnestness, uh, words, I can't say words. That he had seen the man that saw the great snake, and that they were going to lease the ground around chain lakes for hunting ground. That they were already having great chains made. Huge traps constructed harpoons, lances, spears, gas, and barbs in readiness with the spring opened, and we were going to capture, if possible, the monster of the mighty deep, now landlocked in the small fresh water ponds of the Makia's chain links. Just a little, little later, I heard another person say with the same bim that I had seen a man that saw the man that said he saw the great snake. Hall and Libby were on the shore of Chain Lake. They heard a noise. I saw what they took to be a man and a skiff, but soon became convinced it was a serpent. The smallest part was a large was as large as a pork barrel. He says, when last seen an outlet had left the water and passed a distant point of land covered with granite boulders. Mr. Quimby refused the above statements thus. On the very day the Hall and Limby were at Chain Lake, Quimby was also at the lake. He had gone to the head of the lake for some boards and other supplies for a camp, including a barrel stove that he placed on the bow of the skiff. He had rowed the skiff down lake 
to into the outlet where there are no granite boulders. If Paul saw granite boulders where there are none, well, he likely saw a monster where there was none. Quimby continues. In January, one Hunswell of Alexander came to our camp with a big story that he had seen a trail of a, the huge creature, four feet wide, three feet deep, and a quarter mile long. Logs had been turned out of track and he had torn things up awfully. Mr. H was also very much excited. We know, as did Sewell Quimby, that people from Alexander would never utter an untruth. Upon investigating, Quimby found a place in a swamp where Hunswell had seen the trail. Quimby estimated it to be three and four feet wide and two and a half to three feet deep. The trail was sinuous, making three or four bends. It was in two places, each three rods long, and looked a little uh, particular. All this Quimby attributed to the freezing and thawing of the swamp. A study of the 1880 census indicated that Hunswell was either Andrew, age 49, or Charles Sidney, age 30, both married and both sons of Jonathan, age 77. Charlie White never saw the monster, but his father, Coolidge told him that Arthur Heron had seen its tracks. Arthur was born in January 1880 and came to the shores of Pocahontasine in the mid-1890s with his father, Fred, and family. Arthur spent much of his, life, his uh, adult life on Pocahontasine and lived on the lake shore in Alexander in South Princeton. These lake creatures, by whatever name and whatever watershed, likely are harmless. So while you are on the lakes or prowling in the swamps, keep your eyes and your mind open. A few good pictures, we might get the Puka Moonshine Lake Monster listed on the Federal Endangered Species List. And while we are at it, we will still need stories to share and are looking especially for stories about the Indian Devil. The Pokemon called this creature Lunk Seuss. Is something similar called a catamount, matalotin, or panther. Uh, Bubba Arco is based on historical records, accurately but not completely copied. Its collision is a ACH newsletter and meant to illustrate the possible source of stories about the Mugutsan, like monster and royal stories in our culture. Uh, Okay. Uh, so, guy was saying, uh, he seen something by uh, some Grant Boulders, and the guy's like, there's no Grant Boulders there, so you must be making it up. Because that's what he's saying. There's uh, a really big snake in the lake. That sounds like. Oh, I can hear my dog. Hear my dog in the background. Dude, you ever seen like uh, watching like oh, oh those things on the palm of my back, dude. Let's go. There's probably just like really big snakes. 
Ah, uh, this is next monster. It's a Pamola. Uh, uh, this version of the legend comes from Eugene Vermeule's 1866 collection, The Anakins and Their History. As with many older texts, be aware that there is some bias in Vermeule's attitude towards indigenous religions. Okay. The Pinspacot Indians believed that an evil spirit called Pamola, uh, which means he curses on the mountain, resided during the summer season on top of Mount Katatin, the greatest of mountains. They offered sacrifices to him to appease him, so that he should not curse them or otherwise injure them. Although they hunted and fished in the woods and lakes around the evil spirit Pamola, they pretended to have seen the spirit on top of the mountain on several occasions while hunting or fishing around it. It was by till late that they have attempted to ascend the mountain. It is long, it is long since that a party of white people desired to go on top of the Mount Catherine and took some Indians to accompany them as guides. The Indians escorted them to the foot of the mountain, but they refused to go further, fearing to be either killed or devoured by Pamela. No persuasion from the party could induce them to proceed further. On, on the contrary, the Indians tried to dissuade the party from ascending the mountains, speaking to them of this evil spirit and how many Indians have been killed or devoured by them, by him, and that no man ever returned who dared to go on Mount Catherine. The Indians, however, were prevailed upon to wait for the descent of the party, who, in spite of the remontrous of the Indians, ascended the mountain by themselves without guides. They were quite surprised to see the party back as they entertained no hope of the return, believing with certainty they had been killed or devoured by Pamela. It would not be improper it would be not be improper to give here a brief episode of the Indian tradition concerning this evil spirit Pamela. Residing upon Mount Catherine, a mountain famous amongst the Indians of Maine, a tradition which is believed by the Indians unto this very day, they relate that several hundred years ago, while a Pennsylvania Indian was encamped eastward of Mount Catherine on the autumn hunting season, a severe an unexpected fall of snow covered the whole land to the depth of several feet. Being unprovided with snowshoes, he found himself unable to return home. After remaining several days in the camp, blocked up with drifts of snow, and seeing no means of escape, he thought that he was doomed to perish. Hence, as it was, uh, as hence it were through despair, he called with loud voice on Pamela for several times. Finally, Pamela made his appearance on the top of the mountain. The Indian took courage and offered to him a sacrifice of oil and fat, which he poured and consumed upon burning coals out of the camp. As the smoke was ascending, Pamela was descending. The sacrifice was consumed when the spirit got only halfway down the mountain. Here the Indian took more oil and fat and repeated the sacrifice until Pamela arrived at the camp and the Indian welcomed him, saying, You are welcome, partner, Pamela replied. You have done well to call me partner. Because you have called me by that name, you are saved. 
otherwise you would have been killed by me. No Indian has ever called on me and lived, having always been devoured by me. Now I'll take you on the mountain, and you shall be happy with me. Pamela put the Indian on his shoulder, shoulders, bid him cl close the eyes, bid him to cl close the eyes, and in a few moments, with a noise like the whistling of powerful wind, they were inside of the mountain. The Indian describes the tear of Mount Catherine as containing a good, comfortable wigwam furnished with abundance of venison and with all the luxuries of life, and that Pamela had wife and children living in the mountain. Pamela gave him his daughter to wife and told him that after one year he would, could return to his friends on the Pensacot, that he might go back to the mountain to see his wife anytime he pleased and remain as long as he wished. He was warned that he could not marry again, but if he should marry again, he would be at once transported to Mount Cassin with no hope of ever going out of it. After one year, the Indian removed, returned to Old Sound and related all that happened to him in Mount Catherine and the circumstances through which he got into it. The Indian persuaded him to marry. The Indians persuaded him to marry again, while he at first refused, but they at last prevailed on him to marry. But that morning after his marriage, he disappeared, and nothing more was heard of him. He felt sure that he had been taken by Pamela to Mount Catherine, as he had told them. What the hell, dude? What do you do that for? Told you. This back uh, filled the Indians with consternation, and they conceived a great fear for this evil spirit. Yet a young Indian woman constantly persisted in refusing to believe even the existence of Pamela, unless she saw him with her own eyes. It happened one day that while she was on the shores of the lake of Bucatis, uh, okay, uh, Pamela appeared to her and reproached her with, with her incredulity. He took her by force, put her on his shoulders. And after a few moments' flight, with a great whistling of wind, they were in the tier of the mountain. There, she remained for one year, and was well treated, but was got with child with, by Pamela. A few moments before her confinement, Pamela told her to go back to her relations, saying that the child that was to be born of her would be great, and would perform such wonders as to amaze the nation. He would have the powers to kill any person or animal by simply pointing out at the object with the forefinger of his right hand. Hence, the child was to be watched very closely to the age of manhood, because many evil spirits might fall from that power. But when the child grew up, he would save his own nation from the hands of his enemies, and would confer many benefits to the people. If she should be in need of any assistance, she had nothing to do but to call Pamela in any place she might be, and he would appear to her. He warned her not to marry again, because if she should marry again, both she and the child would at once be transported to Mount Catherine forever. He then put her on his shoulders in the same manner as he had done in taking her up to the mountain, and left her on the shore of the Lake uh, Ambicitus, 
She returned to Old Town, where she related all that happened to her, and also that she had, also that she had seen in the mountain, the Indians of whom I'm, hair made mention above. A child was born, and she did took, and she took great care of him. She called him several times on Pamela, was always made his parents to her. She wanted any venison either into the woods or in the river. She had but to take the child and hold in his right hand. She stretched out his forefinger and made it point out to a deer or moose and at once fell dead. So also in a flock of ducks, she made Charles' first finger single one out of the flock where which likewise fell dead. The child grew and he was the admiration and pride of all. It happened one day that while he was standing at the door of the wig man, he saw a friend of his mother's come in. He announced it to her, and at the same time, with the first finger of his right hand, he pointed at him. The man immediately dropped dead. This fact caused great consternation not only in the mother of the child, but also in the entire tribe, who looked at him as a very dangerous subject among them. Everybody fled from his company and even from his sight. The mother called on Pamela and related to him what had happened. And also the fear and concentration in which she and the entire tribe wore. Pamela told her that he had already warned her to watch the child, because power conferred on the child might produce serious evils. He now advised her to keep the child altogether apart from society to the age of manhood, as he might be fatal with many others. The Indians wanted her to marry, but she refused on the ground of it being forbidden by Pamela, who was her husband. And case of marriage, she and the child both would be taken up. Mount Catherine, taking up Mount Catherine. However, the Indians prevailed upon her, and she married. But even on the marriage day, all the Indians, all the Indians were gathered together and dancing and feasting for the <coughs> celebration of marriage. Both she and the child disappeared forever. So, maybe that, uh, him, them not marrying, is like not a thing, he want the character, Pamela, want, maybe it's like a role, like a, maybe why he's there too. Oh. Uh, encountering a goat man in Maine. As I mentioned before, the United States is blessed with an abundance of half human, half animal monsters. If you travel to the Midwest, you'll encounter Dogman, the Lizard Man lurks in South Carolina, and the Bunny Man haunts parts of Virginia. The Bunny Man? What the hell is that? I'll get to that. Okay. Here in New England, we of course have the Pigman of Northfield, Vermont, but I've Recently read about a goat man who was seen in Cherryfield, Maine. Very exciting. The story goes something like this. Back in the 1950s, a Cherryfield man was driving his truck through woods outside of town. He was a local and had spent most of his time hunting, fishing, and logging in the forest of Maine. Those decades of experience didn't prepare him for what he encountered that day. He had filled up his gas tank before he left home that day, 
so he was very surprised when his truck came to a gradual stop on a long, lonely road, his gas cage read empty. He got out and checked the tank. It was indeed empty. He checked the bottom of the truck that, but couldn't see a leak, and he didn't see any sign of gas dripping on the road. He was annoyed and puzzled, but when he got out from beneath those trucks, those emotions turned to surprise and maybe a little terror. Standing in the middle of the road was a man who was half human and half goat. His lower body and legs were naked, hairy, and shaped like a goat's, while his torso was human-shaped and covered in a flannel shirt. Goat horns grew out of his head and his ears were pointed like an animal's. Other than that flannel shirt, the goat man looked like a mythological stator or the Greek god Pan. The half-naked goat man smiled at the cheerful man and slowly sauntered into the woods. The man got back into his truck and locked the door. He tried to start a truck hoping desperately that he could drive home just on fumes. To his surprise, the engine started. His gas cage now red full, he drove home without incident and never saw the goat man again. There are a lot of interesting things about the story. First, I'm excited to have a goat man seen in New England. Goatman has been seen in the parts of the nation, including Maryland, Kentucky, and Texas. Apparently, a goatman has always been in Williamstown, Massachusetts, or is that Maine? I forget. Is that Maine, Massachusetts, or Maine? I forget. I don't know. But I don't have any information on those sightings. Second, I think the empty gas tank is pretty interesting. I was reminded of a lot of alien abductions and UFO science stories I've read. Someone is driving down an asphalt road, the car mysteriously stops, they see a strange light or a strange creature, and then their car works again and they drive home. This story follows a similar pattern. In all these stories, the, force, the forces from the other world disrupt our technology and maybe our technological worldview in order to make themselves known to us. And finally, I think the final shirt is interesting. Obviously, stories happen in chilly Maine, not the sunny Mediterranean, so of course Goat Man would be wearing a shirt. It's cold up in the, those woods. However, there have also been signs around the country of Bigfoot wearing a flannel shirt. Again, like the Goat Man, these shirt-wearing Bigfoots are naked from the waist down, but why are they wearing shirts at all? A Bigfoot is hairy all over. There's something unnerving about the idea of a large male monster roaming around the woods that's wearing a shirt. Or maybe it's appealing depending on what you're into. The shirts Bigfoot wears are usually described as played or final, which is U.S. are symbolic of rural masculinity. Bigfoot and the goat men are wearing Brooks Brothers Oxfords because they inhabit the world while outside of the world. Interestingly, redheaded and tracker of Route 44 also wears a plaid shirt. I found this story in T.M. Gray's The Indian Gravesite Tales. Gray is a manor. Notes that once he was hiking in the woods alone. Was alone. She heard some trained flute music. She called to the unseen musician and the music stopped. Then it started again. 
tried to follow the music, but as she did, she realized it came from a different direction. Creeped out, she headed back to her car as fast as she could. As she notes, Pan and the series were famous for playing the flute, so who knows what strange encounters she avoided. Alright. The Spectral Moose of Maine. One of the categories of creatures that lies squarely somewhere out in the fringe twilight between cryptozoology and the paranormal is the phenomenon of spectral animals. Britain has its Mysterious phantom black dogs. The Midwest of the United States seems to be plagued by bizarre disappearing and reappearing kangaroos. The list goes on. These are creatures that on the surface seem to be of a somewhat cryptozoological nature, yet on further inspection, inspection proved to be not only strange, but way too strange. Within this menagerie yeah, of the weird, one that certainly stands out among all the strangeness is the apparition known as the Spectre Moose of Maine. The Spectre Moose was a mysterious creature spotted in several areas around Maine during the 1900s. The creature was described as being an enormous moose 10 to 15 feet high with a ghostly dirty white coloration and brandishing an immense set of formidable antlers. coat of the animal is sometimes described as glowing faintly. The spectre moose was said to have an extremely acute sense of smell and hearing, as well as the ability to appear or disappear at will and to phase through solid objects. Hunters who came across the apparition often told of it not being able to get near enough for a shot, as well as animals rather discerning habit of suddenly blinking in and out of existence right before their eyes. A hunter by the name of Gilman Brown and his companion, a taxidermist by the name of Granville Gray, described one encounter in which they fired at the moose only for it to vanish before the bullets could hit it. The Spectre Moose was first sighted in 1901 when a sportsman from Boston by the name of M.A. Cushing spotted the beast near Terrebonne Mountain in the Catherine region. A few months later, giant moose was seen again near the Lobster Lakes by a town guide named Clarence Duffy and a Bangor lumberman called John Ross. In the following years, the moose would appear in ways of science only to disappear for years at a time for rearing its head again. One such, one such rash of signs occurred in 1917, another in 1932, then again in 1938. During the 1938 sightings, the monstrous moose was most often seen stalking the forest of the Chesnook region along the west, bre- west branch of the Pensacot River. One particularly vivid report came from a man only known as Houston, who was on his way back to camp after a timber cruise around Chesnook Lake. Houston came across an open bog 
that he described as being about 30 acres in size. Within this bog, the man spied a herd of 16 moose feeding, about 80 yards from the main herd just inside the timberland line. Uh, Houston spotted three big impressive bulls. The interesting part was that one bull dwarfed the other two and made them look like pygmies, even though they were by no means small specimens themselves. Houston described the enormous beast as a monster and mentioned that it had an almost luminous white coloration. Of the monstrous moose and antlers, Houston said, Besides the spectral coloration, there were these antlers again, 20 points on one side, 21 on the other, with the palm at least 18 inches wide in the velvet. At this time, some skeptics point out that it may have been merely a large gray horse that escaped a logging camp, but this would certainly not account for the size descriptions or the antlers. Moose are typically larger than horses in the first place. An experienced hunter would not likely be mistaking a horse for a moose. Perhaps a more reasonable explanation is that a spectral moose was actually an individual or individuals exhibiting unusual coloration. While mo most moose are brown, there have been cases reported of white moose. It is, it is uncertain just why this color pattern ha pops up from time to time, but it does appear to be albinoism. That's all right. Albinoism, yes, sir. Albinoism, as moose still have brown eyes. It does not appear to be albinoism, as moose still have brown eyes rather than the pinkish hue one would expect if they were truly albinos. The color pattern is extremely rare, but there is one area of Ontario, Canada, that's actually been called the white moose forest due to the uncommon number of sightings of white moose there, which locals call spirit moose. Small town of Foliet, as well as Avaho Lake Provincial Park, seems to be the center of this white moose forest, as it is here where most of these sightings have occurred. A large angel with such coloring seems like it could certainly account for a ghostly moose with spectral white coloration. Could a very large moose with a rare anomalous color pattern such as this be behind the historical accounts of the spectral moose of Maine? Or is there still some kind of mystical ghostly moose out there prowling Maine's forest and wearing its dormant antlers ever once in a while? It is difficult to say what is or whether it will again appear for now. The creature remains mostly a local legend as accumulated its fair share of lore over the years. Researcher M Michael or Michelle Solaire rediscovered the story of the Spectre Moose after years of being mostly a forgotten legend, and she had done a lot of work to document and provide a chronology of science of the moose. Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman has also written extensively on the matter in articles and blog postings. More fascinating information on the history of this phantom animal can be found in Solaire's book, Strange Remain. I need to get her on there too. Alright. We're getting down to it. Alright, last monster. I, I can't find much about this monster because they don't really like talking about it too much. 
to but it's the Wendigo. Uh, Wendigos are the evil man-eating giants of Instabane mythology. Wendigos play the roles of monsters and boogeyman in some legends and others Chippewa people who commit sins, especially selfish, gluttony, or cannibalism, cannibalism, are turned into a Wendigo as punishment. The appearance of a Wendigo is huge, monstrous, and made of ore coated in ice, but the human it once was is still frozen inside the monster, where its heart should be. It must be killed to defeat the Wendigo. In a few legends, a human has been safely rescued from the heart of a Wendigo. But usually, once a person has been possessed by Wendigo spirit, the only escape is death. When I played, who's that game? What was that game? That Wendigo game. That was really good. Wendigo game. Until dawn, yeah. That's it. Until dawn. That game's really good. Came out in 2015. It was on PlayStation 4. It's like a, a it's a it's on is a 2015 interactive drama survival horror video game developed by Sumerus Games and published by Sony Computer Entertainment for the PlayStation 4. Players assume control of eight adult monsters can survive on Blackwood Mountain where their lives are threatened. It's really good. I see playthroughs of it. I'm I'm too scared to play it myself. I'm a little poony. I'm a little poony. Alrighty, okay. Oh. Okay. I can't find anything really more about monsters in my... So, that's it for this episode. But yeah. It's like, uh... to reach me where am I uh yeah I'm on anchor what was I trying can't get my thoughts together sorry okay I'll end this okay yeah I'm giving my plugs on where to find me on social media you can find me on Facebook on go to the Facebook group go to Monster Legends Podcast it's like a Monster Legends podcast on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram at G1 Tanner. Twitter at personal Twitter is at G1 Tanner. Or the podcast Twitter is at Monster Legends P. And you can email me for um, to be a guest or contact me about like you can uh, submit stories or anything like that. Send me email at monsterlendspodcast at gmail.com. Dot com. Yeah. Uh, I'll link. I'll. I'm gonna put everything that's always on the descriptions, so you can find it easier. You can find listen to episodes on Anchor at anchor.fm/monsterlendspodcast. You can also follow me on Spotify. And that will link you to different, you can find different links to different platforms from anchor.fm slash monster podcast. 
such part such um um platforms that this uh, podcast is available on include Apple Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, yeah, and Anchor, of course. Also, make sure you listen to, check out uh, the Palace Podcast and uh, Top of the Flop. And who else? The Moving On Podcast and Into the Darkness, Till From Campfire. All of them are great. And I forgot someone. Spotify. Oh, we're Sorian. Also, oh okay. yeah, check out um, a little Southern humor on YouTube. They're uh, they're, they're from YouTubers I work with. They're pretty good. I don't work with. I actually they like they work. We got the same job. No, not as YouTubers or podcasters, or whatever. But we actually work at the same place, like, like in real life. You know. Yeah, come in. Also, share this with your friends. Let me know what you think. And have a good week. Thank you for listening. This is Tanner. I'm going to end this now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or to find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.